You're listening to Monocle on Saturday, first broadcast on the 29th of April 2023 on Monocle Radio. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Coming up on today's programme, broadcast veteran Robin Lustig joins me to look through the weekend papers. Also ahead, Julie Finch, the CEO of Hay Festival, is on the line to chat about a new eco-initiative. We'll be hearing about the new Ukraine Museum in Chicago and a bit later on today's show... We learned of tidings from which Carlson can draw comfort as he fields approaches from Newsmax, OAN, RT and others who assume, probably depressingly correctly, that there will always be a profitable audience of angry yahoos for someone with a plausibly respectable demeanour telling them what they wish to hear. Andrew Muller looks back at the last seven days. Uh, That's all coming up. First, here's the news. Ukraine is wrapping up preparations for a counter-offensive against Russian forces and is largely ready for it to go ahead, Defence Minister Alexei Reznikov has said. As soon as there is God's will, the weather and a decision by commanders, we will do it, he told an online news briefing. He gave no date for when the counter-offensive would start, but added, globally speaking, we are, to a high percentage, ready. A fuel tank is ablaze in the Crimean port city of Sevastopol after what appeared to be a drone strike, the Moscow-installed governor said today. Sevastopol, on the Crimean peninsula annexed by Russia in 2014, has come under repeated air attacks since Moscow's full-fledged invasion of its neighbour in February 2022. Russian officials have blamed the attacks on Ukraine. Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida is expected to visit South Korea in coming weeks and meet with President Yoon Suk-yeol, officials said, reciprocating a Tokyo visit by the South Korean leader last month. Officials said the meeting was expected before Kishida hosts a G7 summit from May the 19th. And the Biden administration outlined efforts this week to address growing U.S. national security concerns on foreign companies' handling of Americans' data. The concerns about Chinese-owned TikTok have sparked new efforts in Congress to boost powers to address it or potentially ban the popular short video sharing app. And that's your Monocle Radio News. Now with me in the studio is the journalist, broadcaster and former presenter of The World Tonight on BBC Radio 4. It's Robin Lustig. Good morning to you, Robin. Good morning. It's lovely to have you here. Tell me, how does it feel having been out of the studio on a daily basis to be back behind the mic? Oh, I love being in a studio. I'll always be happy in a studio. Uh, Early mornings aren't quite my thing. I'm I'm more of a night bird. But yeah, I mean, studios are just exciting places to be. The adrenaline kicks in and it's just lovely to be here talking to you. It really is, isn't it? There's something about putting those headphones on and then connecting with the world, really. Hope there's somebody out there. Hello. (laughs) There are plenty of people out there, let me assure you. And plenty of people who really want to know what's going on in Sudan, which seems to be one of the biggest crisis points in the world. But sadly, as we're seeing uh, the, the 
foreign nationals being evacuated, I think it's going to drop out of news coverage. I suspect once this evacuation phase is over, you're absolutely right. I mean, the awful truth is that there are conflicts in so many countries around the world and the media can't pay attention to all of them. Ukraine obviously takes a priority for all kinds of reasons. Uh, Sudan is a real tragedy because it's a huge country. It's an important country. It's been through so much turmoil. There was some hope that things might get better, but now they're getting very much worse again. Mm. So how's it being reported across the world? Well, it, it seems to me that a lot of people really had very little knowledge of the background to what was happening in Sudan. It's not a country that has figured largely in international media reports. Some people will remember many years ago the conflict in Darfur, which did receive a lot of global attention. Then, of course, there was the birth of South Sudan, which uh, broke away from Sudan. That, unfortunately, did not go well. South Sudan has been embroiled in tragedy almost from the moment of its birth. Um, I think there's a lot of confusion in the international media about what is happening in Sudan, even more confusion about what can be done to try to bring the conflict to a stop. Mm. Uh, and as we were saying, of course, we're going to see um, the, the gaze diverted away from that. What is it that we should be looking at there? Because this is not just a small regional conflict. This has the potential to really influence things much, much further afield. I think that's one of the great dangers. I mean, first of all, conflicts of this kind can very easily spill over the borders into neighbouring states. Secondly, it's in a part of the world where there are a lot of powerful regional players with their own interests. Um, I was just reading, just before I came into the studio, reports that the Russian mercenary group, the Wagner Group are already active in Sudan. That would seem to suggest that Russia has interests there. Lots of other regional players also have interests. This does have the potential to become a significant major regional conflict. And of course, the United Nations, the African Union, all kinds of international bodies should be paying attention, should be trying to mediate, at least get the ceasefire made more permanent and uh, get the warring parties to start talking to each other again. I mean, some analysts are saying that the Wagner Group have no interest in uh of stoking this conflict in any way because of course what they're really there for is is the money they're there for the for the for the mineral riches and for what they can get out of it but the danger would be of course that any action uh, then creates a power vacuum and then you open the way for other players perhaps along regional uh, along religious or uh, ethnic lines to, to move in one just has to look at what happened in syria where what began as a uh civil conflict, as it were, very soon spiralled into a regional conflict in which all kinds of major players, including, of course, the Russians, played a significant role. Sudan is a much bigger country than Syria. Uh, arguably, it's economically more important as well. So, yeah, the risks are there. And I think in media terms, the risk is that because it's so complex and because it's not a country which uh, traditionally has figured largely on the international media landscape, then um, attention will wander. And uh, much like Congo, for example, where there's been conflict for decades, virtually unreported, uh, it will go on and on. Mm. Uh, I'd like to turn now to your former employer, and that is the BBC, which, of <laughs> course, is the is the public broadcaster here in Britain. Uh, and as such, uh, really should be beyond reproach when it comes to political interference. Now, there's been an awful lot written and said about this, uh, but the latest crisis is that the chair has had to stand down. Now, this is important because... It 
it is a, a public broadcaster. This is the uh, soft power of Britain, if you like, particularly when you look at the World Service. So just give us the background on Richard Sharp and why he had to go. Well, Richard Sharp was the chair of the BBC, as you say, and he has now been forced to stand down after it was disclosed that he got his job pretty much at the same time as he was arranging for a rather large loan guarantee to be made to the then Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Um, This placed him rather closer than was comfortable to number 10 Downing Street. Not for the first time, it has to be said. I mean, the thing about the BBC is that it is always embroiled in one crisis or another. Um, I remember uh, the crisis back in 2003-2004 after the Iraq war when both the chair and the director general of the BBC were forced to stand down. What was interesting about that was that that was at a time of a Labour government led by Tony Blair. Both the then chair and the then director general were close Labour supporters and indeed donors to the Labour Party, but nevertheless, they fell out, they upset the government and they were forced to quit. Relations between the government and the BBC are always fraught because, as you say, the BBC is a public service broadcaster. The chair of the BBC is appointed by the government. The level of the BBC's income, the licence fee, is set by the government, yet editorially, the BBC traditionally is completely independent. So, Inevitably, it reports things that the government of the day doesn't like. And this goes right the way back to its very beginnings in the 1920s when there was a general strike in the UK. Uh, The BBC insisted on reporting it dispassionately. The government was absolutely furious because it wanted the BBC to be a state broadcaster. The BBC has never been a state broadcaster, but that has caused problems throughout its history. Mm. And just broadening this out to look at it from a more international perspective, I mean, if this were happening elsewhere, would it have had the same result? Would the top person have had to have gone. It's interesting, isn't it? I'm not sure. I mean, I think the BBC does hold a special role in uh, global media affairs, partly because of its world service, which means that it is listened to by many, many millions of people all around the world. And it has, over years, been held up as the beacon of uh, public service broadcasting. As I say, though, over time, the relations between the government and the BBC have become a fraught. The BBC's finances are in a parlous state at the moment. It's been laying off thousands of people. Um, the one thing the BBC is really good at is making crises worse than they would otherwise be. <laughs> it is appalling at dealing with crises. It's a wonderful organisation. I love it dearly. Many Brits love it. It's known colloquially as auntie. Uh, but uh, yeah, it has a lot of problems. Robin, thank you. And we'll be back with you a little bit later on. Now, the Ukrainian National Museum in Chicago is a haven for Ukrainians in the United States. And for more than 70 years, a safekeeper of artefacts, documents and books outside of Ukraine. Monocle's Chris Chermak visited the museum during Ukraine's Orthodox Easter celebrations to hear more of their story. This is a gentleman who collected all those Easter eggs. I don't want to mention how much money that he spent because wife is here. (laughs) (laughs) These eggs are exquisite. They're really beautiful in terms of the artistry. Where did you collect them from? How difficult? Actually, that's like the 80% I collected from Ukraine. I tried to collect from a different artist to show how excellent, you know, that art is. And I'm going to continue to do that to save this for the future, not the future of the Ukrainian, uh, like the, the future for the world. 
The National Museum is located in the heart of Ukrainian village in Chicago, which has the second largest Ukrainian community in the United States behind New York and probably the most concentrated, with around 20,000 Ukrainians still living here in this neighborhood. The area has seen various waves of Ukrainian immigrants settle here over the past century, and the museum itself just celebrated its 70th anniversary last October. Orisia Kurbatov, the museum's administrator, says the museum has long been an education platform for Americans, but especially since Russia's full-scale invasion last year. Everybody's glad to share everything, the, the culture, the traditions, the history, to also say that we are different, and now everybody knows that there is a big difference between Ukrainians and Russians. And so if there's any silver lining to this whole terrible, terrible war, is that, you know, people now know about Ukraine. Orissia's own parents emigrated to Chicago from displacement camps after World War II. That was known as the third wave of Ukrainians emigrating to the United States. The fourth wave was in the 1990s. Orisia says she never really expected a fifth wave. But since Russia's full-scale invasion last February, this museum once again has become a sort of staging ground. We get calls about everything. We get calls, you know, where to donate clothes, you know, people offering, especially at the beginning, you know, that people could stay there. Any type of forms done, jobs, Orissia says many Ukrainians who come are surprised by the vibrancy of the community in Chicago. And here at the museum, every member of this small three-person staff is intricately involved in some aspect of protecting or preserving Ukrainian heritage. Aside from the administrator Orissia, there's Maria Klimchak, the curator you heard introducing our Pisanka egg collector at the top. Working in a museum, especially in Ukrainian National Museum, I never left my country. I think that I do more for Ukraine to compare with my life in Ukraine. Maria came to the U.S. after the fall of the Soviet Union. She not only manages the exhibitions, but also hosts a weekly Ukrainian radio show that's been running since 1952. Maria and her husband have hosted the program for the past 30 years. Every Sunday from 7 till 8 p.m., the same station, you know. I don't know if uh, other community had this in the United States, but we do. And then there's Halina Parisiuk-Saramcha, the museum's archivist. While the museum is now a community space, Halina says the original goal of its founders was to serve as an archive, a safe space for books and artifacts to be collected outside of Ukraine itself because they understood in Ukraine it's impossible to preserve real history. Bolsheviks, communists, they destroyed many old documents. Helena shows me around the library on the second floor of the museum, where she says researchers from Europe and North America have flocked over the past year since the war broke out. If you look at this display, you can see old books. If you're familiar with Ukrainian genius Taras Shevchenko, it's also Shevchenko, his portrait, his books, his first book, Kobzar. It was brought one of the Ukrainian officer from Kiev to U.S. So this is a very old Just copy of the book. But very rare, because this is oldest one. There are also boxes and boxes of records from Ukrainian immigrants. The stories throughout each wave of immigrants over the past 100 years, she says, have many similarities. It was many people who escaped from war, who love Ukraine for whole heart. 
we are independent, but we it it struggle again. Sometimes I, I understand how people suffer because it's not only Bucha or battles now in Bakhmut, it was many battles like that over than hundred years ago. For Ukrainians here, this museum and community in Chicago is about as close as they can get to a home away from home. A student I spoke to, 25-year-old Halia, who's on a Fulbright scholarship here, has thrown herself into fundraising drives and organizing activities for the community. I feel I live in two realities, like in Ukraine and in the United States, but everything I do here is for Ukraine. And I'm so happy that I have so many Ukrainians here. It makes maybe my life easier. Halia says it's hard to talk about the ongoing war with Americans who don't really understand what she's going through. It's why she loves this close-knit community here in Chicago. Even so, she says she does not plan to stay. It's too stressful to be here. I should also be with my sister right now. I think it's not that I she needs me, but I need her maybe more, and I need to be in my family right now. So I bought tickets yesterday to Ukraine, and I will fly 5th of May. Unlike previous waves of refugees who came from Ukraine to settle in the United States, those who have come this time mostly intend to return. After the victory, as Ukrainians like to say. For Monocle, in Chicago, I'm Chris Chermak. Many thanks there to Chris. Uh, you're with Monocle on Saturday with me, Georgina Godwin, and still with me in the studio is Robin Lustig. Now, Robin, you were based for a time in Rome. I was many years ago. It's a city I love dearly, one of the most beautiful cities in the world, certainly one of the most beautiful cities in Europe, but a city which, alas, um, is not at its best at the moment. Well, that's because of piles of rubbish. So the uh, FT is reporting it. That's a great headline, actually. Rome's mayor goes Dutch and bins shadowy waste traders. Yeah, it's a great headline, isn't it? You have to read the story to work out what it means. Um, it's actually quite interesting. I mean, one of the biggest problems that Rome has had now for many, many years is that it can't organise its refuse collection. And uh, particularly the old centre of Rome is lots of narrow streets where it's very difficult for refuse trucks to get down. And uh, I was there last summer and the piles of stinking rubbish were really pretty awful. And it was a great shame because, as I say, Rome is a beautiful city and uh, these piles of rubbish were not beautiful at all. Now, it seems, the mayor of Rome has signed a contract with the Netherlands uh, under which the Dutch will import Rome's rubbish for it and deal with it. Now, I didn't know this, but apparently the Dutch import lots of people's rubbish because they're very good at dealing with it. And so uh, it might actually be a solution to Rome's problems. One of the big issues in Italy generally, and in Rome particularly, is that public services don't work very well. Private companies step in, and a lot of the private companies have shadowy links to organised crime, and so they extort uh, money from local city councils and so on, and that seems to be what happened in Rome. Let's hope that the Dutch can sort it out. And, I mean, does that fix the problem, though, of the very first step of rubbish in a tiny street getting into a collection vehicle? Well, you've put your finger on the problem, haven't you? You've got to organise people to actually pick up the rubbish, put it in a truck and take it to a distribution centre, and that has been one of the problems. It's not a very pleasant job. It's not easy to find people to do it. Whether the Rome City Council can now find enough people to do that work remains to be seen. Uh, to be honest, I'm not that confident because Rome isn't very good at organising its own affairs. But it's a chance. Let's 
keep her fingers crossed. Absolutely. Now, it's a long weekend here in Britain and indeed over many countries in the world because it's Workers' Day, it's May Day uh, coming up on Monday. Uh, and then here, particularly in Britain, it's uh, the coronation the following weekend. So you've got two long weekends in a row. And traditionally, people here and indeed across much of Europe uh, take to their barbecues. Uh, what is it about flame and outdoor cooking that inspires people? I don't know. Do you think it takes us right back to our caveman uh, antecedents? I mean, this is how we started uh, kindling wood to make flame to burn animal meat. I don't know. Uh, barbecues have a peculiar role in human society, don't they? Particularly, I think, in the US and Australia, for example. Um, I'll be honest, Georgina, I am not a barbecue fan. I have never mastered the art of the barbecue. I discovered very early on in my married life that if I tried to barbecue for much more, it would bring my marriage to a very early end. So uh, I haven't been a barbecue. And now it appears from that great organ of British journalism, the Daily Star, which is the tabloid's tabloid. Uh, its, its front page headline today is something about the end of mankind, with the emphasis on the word man, because apparently 50% of women now say they're better at barbecues than men are, which pretty much emasculates what's left of masculinity, I suspect. <laughs> well, my partner is a great barbecue, oh, well, and he, I, I would never, ever take him on. But he has absolutely sort of taken it to a to a fine art. And does I he think, have one of these sort of thousand-pound barbecues? He does, that, yeah. he does. And, but he's all, he can equally do it over, over just kind of flame. I should take lessons from him, shouldn't I? <laughs> but I think that the big problem here, and, and the thing that my, my heart always sinks when I'm invited to a barbecue, because your, your idea is it's kind of charred sausage, on the outside, which are kind of raw inside. Mm. A lot of people just don't do it very well, and it is an art. It is an art, and it, it's not easy to master, and there's this kind of ritual about it, isn't it? I mean, this sort of male bonding uh, ritual where men stand around the barbecue telling each other how it ought to be done with a bottle of beer in one hand and, as you say, meat charring on, on the embers. I, I just don't really see what the attraction is. But, yes, lots of people will be doing it this weekend and, indeed, next weekend. There will be a lot of very badly cooked sausages and burgers. Yeah, stay away. Stay away, absolutely. <laughs> Robin Lustig, many thanks for being with us. That was Robin Lustig. You're listening to Monocle on Saturday. Monocle's May issue includes our annual Design Awards, where we scour the globe for the best in architecture, furniture, branding and more. We've hand-picked the sunniest and most ambitious creations that have caught our eye, from office buildings alive with greenery to slick seating built from recycled materials. Elsewhere, we see why global entrepreneurs have been flocking to Mexico City and putting down roots. We also meet the man breaking down artistic barriers in Tasmania and deep dive into Copenhagen's booming fashion scene, which is driving a wave of creativity and good business. And, as always, you'll find our regular roundup of hospitality hotspots and travel tips to pack plenty of inspiration. Order your copy of Monocle's May issue today or subscribe to get instant access online. Now, Hay Festival and green energy experts Hive Energy have launched Planet Assembly. It's a pioneering use of civic space that will explore dynamic solutions to regenerate the planet. Well, that sounds absolutely huge, and to discuss it, I'm joined now by the CEO of Hay Festival. She's Julie Finch. Julie, good morning to you. 
Good morning. Uh, Julie, many of our listeners will be familiar with Hay, which is the annual festival that takes place, well, all over the world, but we're talking here specifically of your iteration in Wales. I wonder if you just remind us of what that is. So Hay Festival um, happens every year. It's 11 days of brilliant activity around literature, ideas and the arts, bringing people together from far-flung places, actually, and more locally, um, to think about how we can all shape the world together. And specifically now in terms of the environment. So tell us about this this, uh, Planet Assembly. So Planet Assembly came out of our thinking around civic assemblies, where um, organisations bring people together with experts to have discussions and find solutions to the problems that we face today. And we know that Planet Assembly is very important because time is running out. We're not doing enough. And one of the big problems is that people are so overwhelmed and really do not know what they can do and how they can contribute. And what's different about this is that we're bringing together business leaders, experts who are going to sit down round tables with the public and talk about what we need to do next Mm. and how to take action. And how does civic space come into this? I think civic space is is really important. So Hay provides platforms where debate and discussion can happen in an environment where all views and opinions can be aired and people can learn and understand and find some common ground, even if they have different viewpoints. And civic space is all about common ground and taking action. And Hay Festival has, you know, a strong record of engaging with the public historically. And what we want to do is build on that, working with our partners, Hive Energy, but also a huge range of speakers as well who are going to sit down with members of the public and talk about how we can regenerate the world. And so what... what concrete thing do you hope comes out of this at the end of the 10 days of these these discussions? So each day there's a two-hour workshop um, on different subject matter from energy to fashion, water to mobility. Um, and each day of the festival, what we will do is round that up and communicate what the findings have been and culminating in a plenary session on the the last Sunday, on the 4th of June, where we bring all of that together. And we're going to look at what we've discovered. We don't know all the answers at this point, and I think that's what's quite interesting, um, that there may be something completely new that comes out of that. But we will create a document which we can then use to speak to the people that matter and take action um, as a festival ourselves and activate some of the findings from um, Hay Festival 2023. Mm. And anybody can join in these discussions? Anyone can join in. And um, I think, you know, it's quite interesting because um, Hay has been um, described as a democratic Davos. I mean, this is democracy at its root and it's really important for the people who are developing policy to really understand what the public think and believe and and this is a great opportunity for anyone to turn up whether they're policymakers, ministers business leaders and sit down with members of the public and hear what they've got to say 
Um, and I think that's a really important point about Planet Assembly. Absolutely. Julie Finch, thank you very much indeed. You can hear much more about Planet Assembly and, of course, the festival itself on the Hay Festival website. This is Monocle on Saturday. And finally today, Monocle's Andrew Muller reveals what the last seven days have taught us. We learned this week, and you may want to be sitting down for this one, that Fox News blowhard and guy who was bullied either too much or not enough at school, Tucker Carlson, was wrong about something. Specifically this, at the end of his show last Friday. And we'll be back on Monday. In the meantime, have the best weekend with the ones that you love, and we'll see you then. For we learned that Carlson would not be back on Monday, or indeed any day, at least not on Fox News, as he had been canned. Yes, very good. By Fox. We learned that this was possibly as a consequence of Fox settling out of court to the tune of $787.5 million with a company called Dominion, whose voting machines had been traduced repeatedly by Carlson while amplifying the nonsense claim that the 2020 US presidential election had been fixed. And we learned that Carlson's loyal fans were not happy about it. Not at all. And... Perhaps it would be useful to consider how things are with freedom of speech in the United States. I've heard that Tucker Carlson has left Fox News. It's curious news. What is this related to? One can only guess. Relayed by a UN interpreter, that was Sergei Lavrov, foreign minister of Russia, a country well known for a commitment to freedom of speech so rigorous, implacable and indeed ironclad that it hardly ever imprisons, murders, poisons or exiles people who criticise its government. In related developments, we learned of tidings from which Carlson can draw comfort as he fields approaches from Newsmax, OAN, RT, and others who assume, probably depressingly correctly, that there will always be a profitable audience of angry yahoos for someone with a plausibly respectable demeanour telling them what they wish to hear. For we learned that there are those among Carlson's fellow habitues of the fever swamps of American conservatism who are worse off, specifically this guy. Donald Trump invited me to meet him at Trump Tower in New York City. I walked into his office with high hopes on August 15, 2016. I walked out of that office after meeting with him and I knew God had chosen him for such a time as this. That guy being Mike Lindell, CEO of sleep accessories concern MyPillow, and one of the people Donald Trump enjoyed having around to make Donald Trump look, by comparison, a model of intellectual acuity and temperamental rectitude. Lindell is specifically $5 million worse off, after an arbitration panel with either a tremendous sense of humour or none whatsoever instructed him to cough up this amount by way of settling an ill-advised dare. 
Back in 2021, Mr Lindell launched a fate-tempting campaign called Prove Mike Wrong, in which he offered a $5 million reward to anybody who could conclusively demonstrate that his mad fantasies of Chinese interference in the 2020 election were factually erroneous. A software expert called Robert Ziedman did exactly that, submitted his working, which included the observation that among Lindell's evidence was a self-typed Word document, and sued when Lindell Dell declined to pay. So we learned that the pillow proprietor must now pay his creditors unless he somehow gives them the slip. It's a sad case. Tough room. That is bad in the 80s one-hit blunders flock of seagulls, which we would not queue up unless severely provoked. For we learned a genuinely remarkable amount about seagulls, via two of the kind of stories occasionally served up by a generous god to the compilers of whimsical news monologues, looking to round off their week's review with those always reliable fallbacks of making fun of Belgians and leaden bird-related puns. No, don't. No, no, no. For we learned that in Belgium there is held, in the coastal hamlet of Depana, the European gull screeching championship. We learned indeed that this was the third year it had been held and you cannot begin to imagine how annoyed we are that we somehow missed it the first two years as this stuff writes itself. Really it does. Here is this year's winner, splendidly Dutchly named Dutch fellow, Yamo Slutter. We'd save it for the second date, mind. We learned when we looked into it further that there is some deeply wearisome, serious message behind this, seeking to stir up sympathy for the seagull, a creature which, while certainly much maligned, could do wonders for its own image by leaving our chips alone. And we learned indeed that at least one other jurisdiction is taking drastic measures to deter seagulls. Blackpool Zoo, in the proverbially melancholy British seaside resort of that same name, is actually advertising for seagull deterrers. Specifically, people who will wear inflatable bird costumes, which cause them to resemble some much larger rival seabird species and flap menacingly about to scare away seagulls and thus protect the food of zoo animals and zoo visitors alike. And we will be rising nobly at this time above any obvious jokes about the difficulty in Blackpool of telling which is which. We did not learn as such whether Blackpool Zoo is intent on sending its seabird impersonators on patrol in pairs, but very much believe they should because... One good turn deserves another. Boo. For Monocle Radio, I'm Andrew Mullet. Many thanks to Andrew. And that's all for Monocle on Saturday this week. Thanks to our studio engineer in London, Nora Hull, and our producer, Isabella Jewell. Monocle on Saturday returns at the same time next weekend. But now, a look at the world of magazines with Monocle's senior correspondent, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, on the stack. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. 